Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you. Just on the science front, a couple of quick uh, headlines here. New data is showing the people infected with the B1351 variant of uh, COVID. This is the so-called South African variant actually develop immune responses that allow them to fight off all the other variants which is interesting. So scientists are now trying to figure out how to use this particular variant as basically the core ingredient of a monoclonal antibody that can be used as a treatment. And hopefully there's more widespread use of these monoclonal antibodies. My best friend in New York, uh, Jerry, right after he got his COVID shot, came down with COVID. Yeah, I think it was the first time he'd been out of the house in, you know, in a year, and, and he got COVID and ended up in the hospital. And they were talking about putting him on a ventilator. And he asked, he said, can I get the monoclonal antibodies? And the doctor was like, nah, you know, it's, uh, you're too far along. And we, you know, we just, uh, you know, we're, we're not using them that much. Um, you need to stick up for yourself. And my friend uh, didn't, and, but he, you know, he's well now. He finally got on the other side of it, but it was uh, a difficult time. Octopuses dream, and when they dream, the colors on the outside of their body shift. This is fascinating. They think that uh, we have a common ancestor with them, but that was 500 million years ago. So it seems that octopuses might have developed this two-stage sleep pattern like we have separately from us, but nobody's really sure. And finally, they have found an insect that is the Bemisei tabaki is, is the name of it. It's called a white fly or a type of white fly. This insect actually swiped a gene from plants. Now genes are, you know, DNA is not supposed to be able to move from plants to animals, but, and this happened apparently millions of years ago, it swiped this gene and therefore it can eat plants that produce toxins to kill bugs and be resistant to them because it's got the same gene the plant does. So just, just amazing stuff that's happening in the world of science. This is from uh, nature.com. You know, I get a daily briefing from them that's just absolutely fascinating. And finally, there's a, another study that was just published that almost half a million COVID infections could have been prevented in the United States. And 9,000 lives could have been saved had 
we had a nationwide ban on shutting off people's water because they can't afford to pay their water bills. Because what was happening, what is, it's continuing to happen, is people lose their jobs because of COVID. They can't pay their bills. They can't pay their water bills. The city shuts off the water to their home. Then, knowing that there's no water to the home, the home is declared uninhabitable, and the city comes along and slaps a big red sign on the front of the house and, and forces everybody out of the house, and suddenly you've got people who are now homeless. Or they're moving in with friends and family, and now you've got you know, high-density living and more rapid spread of COVID. So just this one thing, shutting off water to people, which is insane, right? I mean, you, you know, water and air, breathing and drinking, are even above food, are two of the things that keep us alive. That any city would shut off anybody's water for any reason just strikes me as insane. But this is happening all across the country, particularly in areas where the water utilities are private for-profit companies. And because of this, according to this research, a half a million COVID infections happened because of this, and 9,000 people died as a consequence of these. This is research that was just uh, published by Cornell University and the uh, national advocacy group Food and Water Watch. And you can find it over at Food and Water Watch's website. So, number one, Joe Biden's press conference over at thewriting.com. That's R-I-G, not W, but R, thewriting.com. Basically... <laughs> Their subtitle is Alerting Liberal Audiences to Today's Headlines from the Right. I would say, you know, we read right-wing news so you don't have to. But, but here's what conservative Americans, Republican Americans, were getting from their media about Joe Biden's press conference. And some of the questions were just stupid. You know, I, you know are you going to run for a second term? Anytime you ask any president that, anytime in his, certainly in his or her, well, it's always been his up to this point, but in any case, anytime you ask him, anytime in his first two, three, even early four years, the answer is going to be, of course, because who wants to declare two months into their presidency that they're already a lame duck? It just doesn't happen. It was a stupid question. And then it was followed up with, well, is Kamala Harris going to be your running? I mean, give me a break. Anyhow, here's the Washington Times, the headline, Biden press conference was elder abuse. It was an hour of incoherent babbling, except when President Joe Biden read directly from his talking points. The questions were polite and predictable from pre-selected approved reporters, right? Fox News, Biden's first press conference leaves Americans with more questions than answers. Kaylee McEnany, at his first press conference, Biden offers confusing and completely unacceptable answers. Western Journal, Biden laps into nonsense during first solo presidential press conference. The next one, Biden, this is from CNS News, Biden suffers four-second mental meltdown, struggles to move on to next question. Thursday at his press conference as president, Joe Biden appeared to forget what he was saying that became so confused that he struggled to move on to a new topic. WND, World Net Daily, Biden survives his first press conference barely. He lost his train of thought, assuming he had one. He forgot some of the questions that were asked. He continually flipped through a notebook, strange to see among past commanders-in-chief and rid-prepared answers. What an ugly scene. Oh, man. You know, I went back and watched parts of it because it happened while I was on the air. And I thought he did a great job. I mean, it was so nice to see an American president actually answering questions honestly, which is not all that common. You know, or at least it hasn't been all that common in the last four years. But I think the bigger news is what happened in Georgia. Brian Kemp the governor, who he won by only 50,000 votes, and Stacey Abrams had registered 53,000 black voters. 
And after he purged a couple hundred thousand people, including a lot of black voters off the voting rolls the previous year, this was 2017, in 2018, when he was running against Stacey Abrams, he was still Secretary of State, and he refused to let her 53,000 black voters go on the voting rolls. And then he won the election by 50,000 votes. That guy. He's now the governor because of that. And he signed this legislation. It was introduced into the House of Representatives in Georgia. It passed the House. It was introduced into the Senate in Georgia. It passed the Senate. It was sent to the governor. It was signed by the governor all in less than 10 hours. It's called a blitzkrieg. So Milton Mayer, back in 1953-54, went to Germany and befriended 10 average Germans and asked them, how did this happen? And this is what one of them said. This is in Milton Mayer's book, They Thought They Were Free, which is, uh, it used to be out of print for a while, and I started ranting about it on the air, and now it's back in print, which is just great. Anyhow, this is from his, his book. He's quoting one of the Germans who survived the, uh, the Nazis. The guy was a college professor. He says, what happened here was the gradual habituation of the people, little by little, to being governed by surprise, to receiving decisions deliberated in secret, to believing that the situation was so complicated that the government had to act on information which the people couldn't understand, or so dangerous that even if the people could understand it, it couldn't be released because of national security. I mean, Kemp did the exact same thing that Jeb Bush did for his brother George back in 2000, blowing black people off the voting rolls. Well, the German who was talking to Milton Mayer continues, as if he had been living in Georgia or Iowa or Wisconsin for the past decade. And by the way, you can read this for free with no advertisements or anything over at HartmanReport.com. I put my daily rants there seven days a week right now. You can also get it in your email box for free, no ads, nothing like that. It's just, this is just... This is what I do. I am committed to this. But anyhow, as I said, this continues. This is one of those Germans in 1953-54 that Milton Mayer was talking about in his book that was published in 55. Quote, This separation of government from the people, this widening of the gap, took place so gradually and so insensibly, each step disguised as a temporary emergency measure or associated with true patriotic allegiance or with real social purposes. And all the crises and reforms so occupied the people that they didn't see the slow motion underneath of the whole process of government growing remoter and remoter. To live in this process is absolutely not to be able to notice it. Please try to believe me, unless one has a much greater degree of political awareness, acuity, than most of us had ever had the occasion to develop. Each step was so small, so inconsequential, so well explained, or on occasion regretted, that unless one were detached from the whole process from the beginning, unless one understood what the whole thing was in principle, what all these little measures that no patriotic German could resent must one day lead to, one no more saw it developing from day to day than a farmer in his field sees the corn growing. And then, one day, it is over his head. This is, where we're, this is where we're at. And he goes on to say, you see, you don't know exactly how or where to move. Believe me, this is true. Each act, each occasion is worse than the last, but only a little worse. You wait for the, for the one great shocking occasion, thinking that others, when the shock comes, will join you in resisting. You don't want to act or talk alone. You don't want to go out of your way to make trouble. 
and then Georgia State Representative Park Cannon, a black woman, elected legislator, was arrested for knocking on Governor Kemp's door as he and his all-white, all-male contingent signed this bill. She was arrested by an all-white police force as he was signing his gutting democracy bill, as the German told Milton Mayer. But that one great shocking occasion when tens or hundreds of thousands will join with you never comes. That's the difficulty. If the last and worst act of the whole regime had come immediately after the first and the smallest, thousands, yes, millions would have been sufficiently shocked if, let us say, the gassing of the Jews in 43 had come right after the German firm stickers on the windows in non-Jewish shops in 33. You know, President Obama warned us about this and specifically cited Nazis, the rise of Nazi Germany. And he did this while Donald Trump was president. I will share his quote with you on the other side of this, and then I'll pick up your phone calls. Oh, one last thing I wanted to tell you about. We had a a poll yesterday over on our YouTube channel. We asked, should members of Congress be forced to look at the dead victims of gun violence? 61% yes with the agreement of the families. 36% yes. Show them to everybody. This is the Tom Hartman Program. And only 3% said, no, keep the photos hidden so we can't see what happens with guns. I think it was predictable, but it's still a kind of cool poll. Jessica in Chicago watching on Free Speech TV. Hey, Jessica, what's on your mind today? Hi, Tom. Yes, I love your poll on the gun violence, by the way. Thank you. Georgia is showing their true colors. It's the strongest shade of white supremacy. When the... Georgia sore losers make it a crime to have food or water in line. And President Biden was right when he said, will there even be a Republican Party? Because Republicans, I know, they're changing to independence. And the stop the still phrase, it should be stop the greed. The sore loser insurrectionists know Trump lost. They just, they're just scared they're going to lose all their privileged lifestyles. Yeah, mm. I, I'm completely with you, Jessica. And with regard to the Stop the Steal thing, I am convinced that that was a program, you know, because people are like, wow, this was actually really well organized the more we learn about this. I mean, you know, this was really well organized. How did, how did that happen so quickly? I think that Donald Trump and Roger Stone put this thing together back in 2016, anticipating that Hillary Clinton would win the election and that Donald Trump would then begin his stop the steal and it would become a whole new fundraiser thing. And maybe he could even grab the White House. And but that they that I think they just pulled out a program that they had put together four years earlier on the assumption that Trump was going to lose and uh, and and recycled it. And you have to include Flynn in there. He. Yeah traveled abroad to all these countries that had um, uprisings, and he knew yep. how to indoctrinate people. He indoctrinated yep. the Trump base. Yep. I am completely with you. And he's become, you know, kind of a touchstone, a, a cultural icon for them. And uh, the, the guy, as far as I can tell, is a full-blown fascist. Jessica, thank you for the call. It's great to hear from you, and thank you for watching Free Speech TV. My quote from Barack Obama Last quote from one of Milton Mayer's Germans and your phone calls. Stick around. We'll be right back.
So this is what President Barack Obama had to say in December of 2017. Now, keep in mind, in December of 2017, Donald Trump was president. It was the first full year of his presidency. In fact, it was toward the end of the first full years of his presidency. And this is what former President Barack Obama said, and I quote, You have to tend to this garden of democracy. Otherwise, things can fall apart fairly quickly. And we've seen societies where that happened. Now, presumably, there, and this is where he goes right to the Nazis, right? Again, quoting Obama. Now, presumably, there was a ballroom in Vienna in the late 1920s or 30s that looked and seemed as if it filled with music and art and literature and the science that was emerging, as if it would continue in, into perpetuity. And then 60 million people died, and the entire world was plunged into chaos. You know, the warnings have been there all along. Madeleine Albright wrote a book about it. The New York Times uh, has a brilliant piece. There's a link to it in my, in my post over at HartmanReport.com. It's actually a video. It's about a 15-minute video or maybe 10-minute video about the rise of fascism in America featuring Jason Stanley, the guy who wrote several books about this. And Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez has come right out and used the F word. She says, you know, fascism, which gives us our final quote from Milton Mayer's German friend back in 1954. He said, you know, he was talking about you expect that, you know, if the government is going to be taken over, that the people will rise up. And he says, quote, but of course, this isn't the way it happens. In between come all the hundreds of little steps, some of them imperceptible, each of them preparing you not to be shocked by the next. Step C is not so much worse than step B, and if you didn't take a stand at step B, why should you have step C? And so on to step D. And one day, too late, your principles, if you were ever sensible of them, all rush in upon you. Now keep in mind, this is this German that Milton Mayer, the reporter from Chicago, befriended in 1953-54 in Germany. He says, the burden of self-deception has grown too heavy. And some minor incident, in my case, my little boy, hardly more than a baby, saying, Jew, swine, collapses it all at once. And you see that everything, everything has changed and changed completely under your nose. And I'll tell you, that's what Georgia is waking up to. In fact, the title of my piece is Georgians are waking up to Governor Kemp's authoritarian takeover. This naked assault on democracy sets the stage for other Republican-controlled states to do the same. And the GOP is now openly and publicly talking about cloning this Georgia law in Republican state after Republican state. And one of the things it does is it puts the Republicans who control the legislature in charge of deciding what really happened with the vote. And if they don't like the way the vote went, they can change it, just like Donald Trump tried to get them to do. Back to uh, Milton Mayer's German friend, the world you live in, your nation, your people, now is not the world you are in at all. The forms are all there, all untouched, all reassuring, the houses, the shops, the jobs, the mealtimes, the visits, the concerts, the cinema, the holidays. But the spirit, which you never noticed because you made the lifelong mistake of identifying it with the forms, the spirit has changed. And now you live in a world of hate and fear and the people who hate and fear do not even know it themselves. When everyone is transformed, no one is transformed. And now you live in a system which rules without responsibility even to God. That's where we're at right now. This is how bad it is.
Oh, and, and toward the end of the book, Milton Mayer asked, back to the college professor, he asked him, how is this to be avoided among ordinary men, even highly educated ordinary men? And the answer, frankly, I don't know. But we are different from that German college professor in 1953 who you know, was a German college professor in 1933 when Hitler seized power in Germany. We are different because we can look back and see what Hitler did in Germany. We can right now look at Hungary, which by the way, Freedom House just rated us below Hungary in terms of democracy, which was taken over by an authoritarian strongman by the name of Viktor Orban just a few years ago. Hungary was a, a democracy. They're a member of the European Union. They're not a democracy any longer. Now they're an oligarchy. They're run by a bunch of rich guys who own all the media and, you know, all the dissidents and anybody who was doing radio like I'm doing right now, they're all in jail. They're all in jail right now. So we have, you know, we can look at other countries and say, holy cow, they couldn't back You're in the 30s. You're listening to the Tom Hartman Program. So we must end the filibuster and pass H.R. 1, the For the People Act, to reverse this insane Georgia law. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Welcome back. So in the uh, Great Minds Think Alike category, I posted my rant over at Democratic Underground. And a person who posts under the name Law Dem, L-A-W-D-E-M, replied to the post saying, From the Patriot's Grill, yes, my novel. So this fellow has written a novel titled The Patriot's Grill, G-R-I-L-L. He says, an old man, one of just a few people old enough to remember something called democracy, is speaking to a bartender in 2099, quote, No, we didn't wake up one morning to find tanks in the streets, if that's what you're asking. Nothing so melodramatic. It was more like the way a young boy becomes an old man, slowly, day by day. And, when you w- and then you wake up one morning, look in the mirror, and find yourself exclaiming, My God, how did I get to be this old? Well, that's how freedom died, an inch at a time over decades. That's brilliant. That is absolutely brilliant. Anyhow, let's pick up your phone calls. Uh, Lynn in El Segundo, California, listening on KPFK. Hey, Lynn, what's up? I heard two days ago on KPFK an interview with a woman named Marilyn Marks, and I would really recommend that you try to interview her on the air. She's with an organization called uh, org, and 
what she was talking about was this new law, and she said that with the mail-in ballots, they will not require a signature for a verification, but they will require like a driver's license number or a photocopy of a utility bill. And what she was emphasizing is how much this is going to set up election uh, elections in the future for voter fraud, doing away with the requirement of a signature, but requiring hmm. ID numbers. So I th- just thought I'd throw that out for you to you know, think about. And, That's interesting, because uh, signatures are biometric. It's harder to fake a signature exactly. than it is to fake an ID. Um, exactly. That's, that's very interesting. I assumed that the whole reason why this new law is going to require, if you're going to mail-in vote, that you have to make a photostat, you have to make a, a copy, a photostat, I'm dating myself. <laughs> Xerox, yeah. I'm dating myself. You have to make a copy of your driver's license. Well, how many people have a copy machine at home? Right. Well, I mean, you know, I, anybody I, with an income under probably fifty thousand dollars a year, maybe forty thousand dollars a year, I can guarantee you they don't have a copy machine at home. What she was saying is that that's not the requirement. They're not going to require a photocopy of a license. All they're going to ask for is the ID number, which means hmm. anybody who has a mail-in ballot coming to their home. Anyone in the home or not in the home could take that ballot as long as they know the number and, you know, like forge the ballot. It's, it's something I, yeah. I really recommend that you look into because... That's fascinating. It's What's serious. the name of her organization again? It's, uh, the website is coalitionforgoodgovernance.org. And okay. her name is Great. Marilyn Marks. And she's like the female Greg Palance. You really should check her out. She's really great. Yeah. Yeah, Sean and I she are. Has a lot of lawsuits. She has a lot of lawsuits going from previous years about the uh, software that they've been using. That's you know not good for security. Anyway, thank you for your time and have a yeah. good rest of your show. Yeah, thank you, Lynn. I appreciate the call. That's a really important point. And the other thing is that Georgia. I still think that back in two thousand four, the Georgia election something really hinky happened because all the election, all of the polls showed that Sonny Perdue was going to lose the, the election for United States Senate. And all the polls showed that, I forget who was running for governor that year, but uh, that he was going to lose, and the Republican. And the exact same proportion that the polls showed the Republicans were going to lose, both the governor's race and the Senate race, the Republicans won by that proportion. It was almost like a, it was a mirror image. And Sonny Perdue getting into the Senate was the one thing that flipped the Senate. That vote in Georgia in 2004 was what flipped the Senate to the Republicans. And to this day, I think something was wrong with that because there was no paper trail. There wasn't a single paper ballot in Georgia. It was all done on voting machines that had no paper trail. But it's not a wise idea these days, apparently, to trash voting machines. (laughs) I'll just leave that out there. Our book today in the Tom Hartman Book Club is Nuking the Moon and Other Intelligence Schemes and Military Plots Left on the Drawing Board. It's by Vince Houghton. This is from the introduction. 
This is a book about desperation. That word has been so overused and misused that it's lost much of its impact. Too many stories about some local sports team desperate for a win or some housewives desperate for whatever that show is about. These pretenders have trivialized a word designed to be used only in the most extraordinary of circumstances. It should be a powerful word reserved for the urgent and overwhelming feeling that one's life is at risk. It's for the truly existential threats, another misused word, to one's country, one's family, one's friends, or one's livelihood. To feel desperate is to believe there are no good options, that everything that has been tried or could be tried is destined for failure. Desperation leads us to consider ideas that would have been unfathomable under normal circumstances, because desperate people make desperate decisions. This is also a book about innovation. Creative thinking about how things work and the possibilities of how things could work has been the catalyst for the astonishingly dynamic technological transformation of the past hundred years. From the advent of lighter-than-air flight to hypersonic aircraft, from bolt-action rifles to electromagnetic railguns, from ENIAC to quantum computing, from one poor freezing soldier in a trench listening to intercepted wireless messages to the NSA's supercomputers collecting the metadata of billions, brilliant people with innovative ideas continue to shape our world and do it exponentially faster than the generations that came before. But when innovation and desperation meet, trouble will usually follow. If necessity is the mother of invention, desperation is the drunk uncle. The guy who only calls twice a year at 3 a.m. on your birthday with the greatest idea anyone has ever had. No matter how hard you argue against the logic of his narrative, no matter how many flaws you find in his reasoning, he's resolute. This will work. It has to. He's a desperate man. Every so often, we're surprised when one of these ideas actually pans out. The U-2 and SR-71 spy planes, some of the most innovative aircraft ever designed, were the result of American desperation to see inside the Soviet Union. Nuclear power, computers, the internet, modern textiles, personal encryption, even the process of how some of our food is grown, were born out of the nation's desperate fear to keep pace with an imposing rival. Much of that history has been written before. Countless books have been published about the remarkable and successful technology developed over the last century by governments for national security needs. This is not one of them. Most history books are full of stories that happened. This is a history book full of stories behind things that didn't happen. Here we'll take an expansive look at projects, missions, operations, and technology that were seriously considered but didn't make the grade. Some were ultimately deemed too risky, expensive, dangerous, ahead of their time, or even certifiably insane. Others were canceled mostly because they were overtaken by events. The atomic bomb worked, the war ended, the plans were captured, other technology superseded. Generally, history books use events of the past to make powerful arguments about historical actors' motivations, personalities, and states of mind, and rightfully so. This is part of what history books are supposed to do. But I contend that the evaluation of historical events is not enough. It can be just as important to investigate policies, decisions, and technologies that were considered at the highest levels, but then nixed for a variety of reasons. The intent of historical actors can be, and I argue is, far more instructive and illuminating than focusing entirely on the outcome of their policies. Outcome history is the traditional way of viewing historical events, but it leaves much to be desired. It has severe limitations, primarily because its lessons are predicated on things that can't be accurately quantified. Fate, luck, misfortune, whatever you want to call it. If the D-Day invasion in Normandy had failed because of a freak weather system, or a lucky shot from a German soldier that took out a key American leader on the beach, or any number of other misfortunate scenarios, would we think any less of Eisenhower's plan? Using outcome-based history, the answer is yes. And therein lies the problem. 
intent can be a very powerful tool for historians. So leave your historical hindsight at the door. Ignore the fact that these policies, technologies, programs, and missions were scrapped before they became real. To get the most out of this book, you should take the advice of Master Yoda. You must unlearn what you have learned. The outcomes of the programs are inconsequential to the overall message of the narrative. Outcome really doesn't matter here at all. That's why this book scorns the counterfactual, the game of what if, vilifies it, mocks it mercilessly. The counterfactual is our enemy. We will not what-if ourselves until we are blue in our faces trying to rewrite history into a hodgepodge of ahistorical nonsense. Deep breath. I might have taken that a little too far. Counterfactuals can be a lot of fun when you're hanging out with your friends and family debating the what-ifs of the Kennedy assassination or the Civil War, the Protestant Reformation, or the Star Wars prequels, or the 1986 World Series. I forgive you, Bill Buckner, mostly. I'd be happy to join you all one day for a vigorous debate on historical counterfactuals, perhaps over your favorite adult beverage or bottle of Yoohoo, but they have no place here. Instead, all of these stories should have you saying, what were they thinking? The best way to approach this book is with an open mind toward the decision makers and how they were approaching the problems facing them. In almost every case, those in power were desperate to do something, anything, to combat their adversaries. Thus, what were they thinking is exactly correct. Except I hope you'll be willing to truly embrace the question and not just see it as the dismissive aside or a hasty pejorative. Nuking the Moon and Other Intelligence Schemes, our book for the day. Right now on the line with us is Jamal Holtz. Jamal is a lead advocate at 51 for 51, 51for51.org is the website. And also the Twitter handle is 51for51 or Jamal Holtz, J-A-M-A-L-H-O-L-T-Z. Jamal, welcome to the program. Tell us what's going on you know, with D.C. statehood. What is the current state of affairs right now? Hey, Tom, I appreciate you having me on. And as you know, the current state of affairs is that D.C. is on the verge of becoming a 51st state. D.C. and its residents has an opportunity, is on the verge of getting the opportunity to be fully voting participants in this democracy that we aspire for. We had a hearing in the House that talked about D.C. statehood, and this was an opportunity to regain momentum behind the D.C. statehood movement. And again, it's really embracing the most pressing civil rights issue of our lifetime and the most voting rights issue of our lifetime, uh, and that's D.C. statehood. Uh, so that, that's where we are now. Yesterday's here was an opportunity to raise awareness around statehood and the importance of giving American citizens their right to democracy. So I'm excited for what's next in, in making my home a state. There you go. Me too. I lived there for seven years. It's a, it's a beautiful town, and it's just insane that uh, D.C. residents pay more federal taxes than most people in most states do anywhere else in the country. D.C. residents yeah. are fully American citizens, yet D.C. residents... I remember when I was living there, the city council had legalized pot, and Andy Harris, this <laughs> right-wing crackpot Republican from Maryland, I think he was one of the dozen or so who refused to honor the police, the Capitol yep. Police. He blew it up and said, okay, fine, you can possess it, but you can't because I can't change that. But you you can't sell it. And so, I mean, it was just like, it's like, why are you messing with D.C.? You're a congressman from Maryland. Well, because D.C. is not a state. We have we have power over it. Don't you know? This is crazy. So, yeah. Jamal, what is the process right now? I, my recollection is that Alaska and Hawaii became states 
simply by acts of Congress that, you know, going back to when Abraham Lincoln brought Nevada into the union because he wanted two Republican senators. It was always just basically an act of Congress signed by the president. But I understand that right-wingers are now saying that you have to amend the Constitution to make this happen, or there has to be a supermajority. What, what, what kind of crazy arguments are they throwing out now? And how do you see this playing out over the next however long? How, how long do you think it's going to be? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things to, to be very excited about is, is right now is that more than half of Americans support D.C. statehood. And that's just not Democrats. That's just not Republicans. Those are American people. And the process and what it looks right now is, of course, we're going to pass the bill out the House. But we got to start talking about what that looks like in the Senate. And, and that's really breaking down those systems and those racist tools like the filibuster and bypassing the filibuster to achieve D.C. statehood. My organization, 5151, we believe that if Mitch McConnell can confirm three Supreme Court justices by bypassing the filibuster with 51 votes in the Senate, you should be able to do the same for democracy. The urgency around this topic and what it means, it's greater than just giving D.C. residents the right to democracy. It's truly about American citizens. And the question that I ask folks who may not support D.C. statehood is, are you simply okay with American citizens not having full voting rights in their democracy? Are you simply okay with suppression? And that's what we have to make this issue. Like you said, it's an American issue, and it's not just something that D.C. residents should be talking about. Should, every American should be talking about it. And there's more people living in D.C. than live in Vermont or Wyoming. And Vermont and Wyoming, between the two of them, have four senators and two members of the House of Representatives. And D.C. That's has, right. well, you have Eleanor Holmes Norton, but she can't, she can speak, but she can't vote. Yeah. Yeah, that's literally suppression at its finest. And we've seen yeah. over the years, history has proven to us that, yes, it's suppression, but it's really suppression of black voices. Is that at a point yeah. where D.C. was majority white, 75% white, the federal government was literally handing over power to uh, D.C. residents. But as racial demographics started to shift, the power dynamic started to shift as well. So then Congress took greater control over D.C. So this isn't just about representation. This isn't just about uh, power. It's about representation. It's about black power. It's about black representation. It's about truly yep. enfranchising American citizens. And I think we can't walk away from the fact that this is a racial justice issue at its heart. Absolutely. And frankly, I think it's, you know, it was the old segregationists who were opposed to, to D.C. statehood in the day. And then it became the Republican Party that was opposed to D.C. statehood. And they're holding to that to this day. And I think that you've nailed it. Jamal Holtz with 51for51.org. What can a person who's listening to this program right now do? What's the best thing that individual citizens can do who are not D.C. residents to try to help D.C. become a state? It's always putting a face to the issue. As people like myself, who is, a, like you said, Tom, pay full taxes to this government and is proud to be an American citizen, but in return I get treated as a second-class citizen. So my call to my fellow Americans is to advocate for me, advocate for a fellow American, and if that we're truly living up to America's creed, that we're the land of the free and the home of the brave, then we have to be brave and stand up for fellow American citizens and be willing to fight for American citizens and giving them their right to democracy. It's that, but it's also calling on those senators and speaking to them about the importance of D.C. statehood, is that this isn't just about party, this is about people. So at some point, and that point has to be now, is that we have to start valuing 
people of a party. And that's what folks can do. And then lastly, Tom, we have a petition going on at moveon.org, M-O-V-E dot org, O-R-G, slash 5151. So I, we encourage folks to sign that petition and help us keep fighting on. Okay, great. And people can call their senators at 202-224-3121 and ask for either of their senators and give them a piece of their mind about D.C. statehood, because <laughs> when is this going to hit the Senate? Is it going to be in a week or two or sooner or later? I'm not sure when the Senate has a hearing or, or conversations on that, but my hope is if it can happen today, let's do it, because we can't wait any longer than franchise American citizens to their voting rights. You know, when you think about it, it's just astonishing that for the better part of 100 years now, I mean, at the very beginning, there was this whole idea that the district was this area that was just government. It was, you know, lightly populated and it was just Mm -hmm. it was all going to be government buildings and things. And, you know, the original rationalization had nothing to do with race. But then as D.C. became a blacker and blacker city, essentially, It became like this island of population, as I said, larger than Vermont and larger than Wyoming, larger than either Mm -hmm. of them, that was actively prevented from participating in our democracy in large part because it was, at least in recent history in the last hundred years, majority black. And I don't see how any Republican can make any argument that doesn't acknowledge that. Mm-hmm. What are they saying? Yeah, it, it's crazy because Republicans and, and folks who oppose D.C. statehood, they dog whistle around the, the true issue. They say things like D.C. doesn't have real people. Or I guess the new argument <laughs> is that D.C. doesn't have a, a car dealership. And both of those are right. wrong. I'm real. I bought a I'm car here. in D.C. with you, Tom. Right. <laughs> My mom bought a car in D.C. So there's a few car dealerships I can direct you to. One is on Bennett Road. Like, Tom, so the, the arguments around this is merely about the fact that Republicans and folks on, uh, and it's not just Republicans, there are folks on both sides of the aisle who, who aren't taken serious that there's American citizens stripped from their right. Yeah. I'm absolutely with you. Jamal Holtz, the website 51for51.org, and uh, also that's the Twitter handle, 51FOR51. Jamal, thanks a lot. It's great talking with you. Nice meeting thanks, you. Tom. Thank you so much. Hi, Tom. Yep, my Good pleasure. Morning. Keep up the great work, and hopefully soon you can be represented too. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. With higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, all into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. It's accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. 
With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Joe Scarborough went off on this racist rant, screed, about how because Joe Biden stopped putting children in cages uh, for months at a time in private prisons and instead is trying to process them into some sort of a system where they can be dealt with humanely, he is, quote, luring people in from South and Central America. That was pretty bizarre. Then there was the story where CNN did this breathless, oh my God, look at this, people crossing the Rio Grande. And the allegation has been made by a couple of people involved, but I'm not sure that it's been validated. So it may or may not be true that some of the Customs and Border Patrol folks actually staged that, you know, let these people know that they were going to let them cross at a particular time just to create the photo op that could be used to damage the Biden administration. There's just a lot of weird stuff going on around the Customs and Border Patrol. Trump claimed at one point that he was essentially using them as his own private neo-fascist police force and was bringing some of those folks up to Washington, D.C. and stuff like this. So I wanted to find out what the heck is going on. What is the deal with CBP, with Customs and Border Patrol? And Jen Budd is a former senior U.S. Border Patrol agent, an intelligence agent turned immigration rights activist, a whistleblower, and a speaker on these issues about Border Patrol and CPB corruption. Jen has a website over at medium.com. It's jenbud9, J-E-N-N-B-U-D-D, number nine, dot medium.com. And Jen's Twitter handle is Bud, B-U-D-D, Jen, J-E-N-N, which is where I first found her. And Jen, welcome to the program. I'm so glad to have you on. I've I've seen a couple video clips of you. Uh, What are your thoughts on what's going on uh, down on our southern border right now? Well, thanks for the invite, Tom. Um, You know, I think that without a doubt, the United States Border Patrol is trying to control the narrative of what's going on. And it's not unusual. They're always doing this, no matter who's in office. But they're kind of mad about the fact that their favorite guy, Trump, lost. And so they are creating a crisis by, it looks like, helping to organize this crossing and then notifying, you know, alt-right contributors to Breitbart to film it. And then possibly trick CNN into filming the the exact same smuggling uh, smuggler, not the exact same event, maybe, but within the same day, it's the same smuggler. It's 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 the same exact area where the crossing happened. And um, so to me, it looks like instead of using their official press avenues with their press information officers, that they are going around that official channel and using the union because technically the chief of the border patrol rodney scott has absolutely you know no power or authority over the border patrol union and it creates you know plausible deniability that he possibly had anything to do with this 
So how is the, the Border Patrol, how are these CPB officers or agents or the, as an institution, I know very little about it, my apologies, but um, how is this different from any other federal police force? We've got the FBI, you've got the Secret Service, you've got ATF, there are other more specialized ones, kind of police branches within the Army and the Air Force and the Navy and the Marine Corps, Coast Guard and whatnot. But what is unique about Customs and Border Protection that produces such a highly politicized culture, as it were? You know, it's always been that way. Border Patrol began in 1924 in response to a recession that was occurring, and a lot of white Americans were suffering from the recession. And the politicians back then blamed the Chinese migrants that had been brought over to help build the railroad system that were now no longer needed. And so they created the Border Patrol initially to address what they referred to as the Chinese problem. And just like now that they're doing with Central Americans, they claim that they brought disease and that they stole jobs and that they were dangerous and that they were criminals. So the Border Patrol has always been a political tool used by both Democrats and Republicans. But what we see now in our time is that the Border Patrol has aligned itself mostly with alt-right groups, and they cater mostly to the Republican values and the Republican side of the story. You know, since I was an agent, the apprehensions after 9-11 have steadily, for the most part, decreased. There are a few years here and there where it jumps up slightly, and, and then it falls back down. But at the same time, as illegal immigration has been decreasing all these years, the number of Border Patrol agents has been increasing. And so the relative numbers of agents to apprehensions is stark compared as to when I was an agent. Does that account for why there are fewer illegal crossings because there's more cops there? No, I think it's, you know, people who have agendas as far as political agendas always try to make it one reason. So right now, Republicans are saying the fact that Biden is trying to rebuild the asylum system because asylum is legal and it is not a criminal act. Um, they're saying, well, that's, that's pulling migrants to want to come here. But the fact of the matter is, is we always have people who need to seek asylum. We always have people on the other side of our border at any given time trying to come. We have to remember that the last year or two, we've had an entire year of MPP or the Migrant Protection Protocol that Trump had enacted, which took people's information when they wanted to claim asylum, but forced them to stay in Mexico. So they have been waiting for a year to have their immigration hearings and have their asylum pleas heard. Then the last year with COVID-19, the Border Patrol enacted Title 42, which I believe they did it uh, in error and are applying it erroneously to justify not even accepting any pleas of asylum, but simply turning them around and pushing them back into Mexico, no matter what country they come from. So we have two groups of, of people that have been waiting for one to two years to come in. Then you have the natural uh, process of the agricultural season, which picks up every spring, which is also what we're seeing right now. 
And, and, and then you also have the fact that they were not accepting unaccompanied children, and they have been waiting to come across. And, and I agree right. that the unaccompanied children issue is a crisis, but I don't agree right. that the amount of asylum seekers coming across is a crisis. So, so Jen, we, uh, with apologies, we're gonna, in 30 seconds, we're going to hit a hard break here. What, okay. what should we do about this? Um, we need to build up our asylum system, hire more asylum officers, and, and do this in a humane way. We are treating asylum seekers like criminals, and seeking asylum is not a crime. And even where they cross, if they cross the border illegally, it is not to be held against them in a court of law if they are an asylum seeker. So we have to address this in a humanitarian way instead of a law enforcement way. Right, and sort those out from people who are just looking for a job. Exactly. Yeah, okay. Jen Budd, J-E-N-N-B-U-D-D-9, the number nine, dot medium dot com is where she writes. And uh, on Twitter, it's Bud Jen, B-U-D-D-J-E-N-N. Jen, thanks so much for dropping by today. It's great meeting you. Thank you. Thank you, Tom. Welcome to the Tom Hartman University Book Club. We're reading from Death in the Pines, a novel set in uh, Vermont. You have to be crazy to do this. On a morning when the Vermont winter sun shone pale and weak across six crisp inches of fresh snow, when the temperature hovered somewhere between 20 and 25 degrees Fahrenheit, I spent a long time searching for 10 stones. They had to be the right stones of a certain weight and shape, heavy but not so heavy they exhausted me, rounded but not so much that they would roll from the place I set them. It took hours to find all ten of them, searching in the sheltered places where the dry, powdery snow was easier to scrape aside. Then they had to be lugged to the spot I had selected, mindless beast of burden work that made me sweat inside my downline jacket. I stacked the stones carefully into a hollow, truncated pyramid. Anyone coming across that pile of stones in ten or a hundred years would know they weren't dropped there haphazardly by a retreating glacier. This was a made thing, too small to be a cairn, too insignificant to be the remnants of a wall. I guess you could call it an altar. The ashes were in a bronze urn, far too small to contain the spirit of my friend John Lincoln. The container had stood on the shelf in my cabin for too many months. The new year had just arrived, and with it a belated first snowfall of the season, and the combination of the two had finally persuaded me it was time to do something about the urn. Holding it in the chill, near silence of the forest, I stood over the structure I'd made and looked off into the distance, Seeing but not seeing the brownish shafts of pines streaked with snow, the bare gray trunks of maples, the white and gray columns of birch, the deep shaded greens of white burdened firs. At that moment, the urn felt heavier than the stones themselves. This was why I was here. The mind drifts at such times. Even after six years, I could recall the particular night that had caused me to travel to this place. On that night, my mentor, no, by that time my friend, John and I had been slumped in the rotting front seat of an ancient, rusting 55 Ford parked in the heavy, humid midnight of Central America. Despite the choking reek of insect repellent, voracious mosquitoes whined in through the open windows, and from time to time we slapped an offender, reducing it to a crumble of tissue to be flicked off with a fingertip. Still warmer than blood heat even at that hour, the dark air sizzled with cicadias. 
We'd left our home base in Atlanta a week before and had taken a circuitous route to this dark clearing hacked from the jungle. We were waiting for either three or four men to emerge from a blacked out warehouse, and we had no idea whether those men knew we were watching or how well they might be armed. What we would do depended on how many came out. If only three, we'd move in and recover what had been stolen. Four would make the recovery problematic, because that would mean that at least one of the men would be a local, complicating the calculus of violence. As I stood over the stone altar, every detail of our conversation went through my mind. A tape rewound and replayed. By that point in our lives, John and I had been partners for so long that we didn't BS each other, had no need to strain for machismo, no use for phony heartiness. We were a good team. We could finish each other's sentences, catch body language signals that amounted to a silent code, recognize unspoken concerns and anxieties in time to be prepared for the unexpected. We told all our jokes to each other years before. Once in a while, one of us might mutter two or three words of a punchline. The other would chuckle in appreciation or exasperation as the mood took him. That night in stop-and-start fashion, we had each spoke of good times we'd had. Waiting in the dark gave each of us a natural urge to talk. That was the one and only time that John had spoken of his quiet way in the forested hills of Vermont, thinking of the coolness of a New England autumn in that hellish tropic night. I'd never known that he'd been to Vermont. He had lived in Buckhead, a suburb of Atlanta, the whole time I'd known and worked with him. But in those suffocating hours of darkness, cool green Vermont was on his mind. Beautiful place, very peaceful, he said. I'd like to go back there when it's all over. I didn't have time to ask what he meant or what would be over. The job, the summer, the career, the life. At that moment, dim yellow light from a kerosene lantern appeared on the black face of the warehouse. First a line, then a thin rectangle and a fat square as the three men inside pushed open the double doors. John and I climbed out of our borrowed car and did our job. In the six years that followed that night, John never had gone back to Vermont, had never spoken of it again. And now for him, it really was all over. After the memorial service, after the will was probated, I didn't feel like hanging around Atlanta. So I made arrangements, gave most of my liquid assets to a community for abused kids in New Hampshire, and bought a cabin on 200 acres in the woods of Vermont. It was here I'd brought my old friend to the place he'd talked about. Pondering the finality of it all, I held the urn containing his ashes, a few bone fragments and pieces of his teeth, ready to fulfill a promise I had never made. Such a time demands words. I took a deep breath of icy air and looked up toward the top of a towering birch. A squirrel made an untidy, tangled nest up there in the highest branches, and the animal itself, or maybe another squirrel who could tell, hung below the nest, head down in the trunk, apparently gazing at me. I imagined the squirrel's bright black eye held accusation. The fall had gone on so long, probably for half the animal's lifetime. So what was the idea of all this snow? Was I to blame? Clearing my throat, I reached far back into memory, groping for the prayers I had last recited as a child. I heard myself say, Dear God, my words took flight toward the washed-out sky on puffs of vapor. As far as I could tell, no one heard them but me and the squirrel. My voice had a harsh tone even to my own ears, a rusty hinge catch. The book is Death in the Pines. It's an Oakley Tyler novel based in Vermont. Barbara in Greenfield, Massachusetts. Hey, Barbara, what's up? Hi, I wanted to comment about New Georgia voting laws. When Governor mm-hmm. Kemp was uh, announcing his signing, there was a black female state senator outside knocking on the door trying to get in. The state yes. police arrested her. 
charged her with two felonies, and she's facing, you know, 10 to 20 years in jail. Yeah, her name is Park um, Cannon. She is the one brave person who stood up to this. God bless her. But charging her with interfering with government business, that concerns yep. me that that might be how the Republicans are going to deal with all the protesters and demonstrators once they oh, yeah. sign the different states pass more of these laws. Count on it. And the GOP announced yesterday that they're putting together a commission. They've got about 20 of these right-wing cranks who are Trump humpers. And, you know, what's going to happen is in 2024, either Donald Trump is going to run for re-election or somebody very much like Donald Trump, Tom Cotton or Josh Hawley or Ted Cruz or, or Rick Scott is going to be the Republican nominee. And they're going to pull the same thing. And you're going to have a half a dozen Republican-controlled states where the majority of the people vote for, a, for the Democrat, vote for Joe Biden or Kamala Harris, whoever happens to be running in 2024. And they're going to say, you know, we've found some irregularities with some of these votes in some of these heavily Democratic counties. So we're just going to throw those votes out. And they're going to hand the election to this neo-fascist Republican, whether it's Trump or whether it's one of the Trump humpers. They are setting it up. They just set it up in Georgia. By the way, three days ago, they set it up in Iowa. Same deal. We're going to have, you know, a commission. We're going to give the state legislature the power to oversee the elections and really decide what happened if there's a problem or a conflict or a state. I mean, you've got... Almost 300 pieces of legislation in 43 states now to restrict voting rights. Now that Georgia has created the gold standard, that's what's going to start going viral in state after state after state controlled by Republicans. Mark my words. And the only thing that can stop it is H.R. 1. And the only thing that's stopping that is the filibuster. Special thanks to Louise Hartman, Sean Taylor, Nate Atwell, Jamie Holly, Joyce the Hammer, Nance, Nigel Peacock, Sue Nethercutt, Patrick White, Gerilyn Halbert, Ron Hartenbaum, Chase Spross, Nicholas Miller, Pat Sweeney, Jabbermocky, and Jay LeBlanc. All the folks who help make this show work for you. And thank you for helping, you know, helping keep us going. Be good to yourself and those around you. Get out there, get active, tag, you're it. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.